Thank you, Seth. How appropriate that they had Pat's story up, and that was, was going to be talking about sort of Christian education, um, because I was recently talking with uh, someone's, someone whose children are in a Christian school, and um, the school is teaching the children about God and about how wonderful He is, that He loves us, that He cares for us. Um, but there's one key element missing. There is no mention of sin anywhere. There's no proper understanding of who we are truly before God or who God truly is in light of what He has done and is doing. It's the problem of so many uh, places, institutions, organizations that have the word Christian in them. Uh, and, and I'm not surprised that the, the outside world doesn't seem to care about that message that these institutions and organizations put forth or espouse. If your message is that you are great uh, and that God loves you, then why would I be inclined to God? other than to maybe pay him some respects. And so maybe I go to a a service every once in a while because I heard that he loves me. The news is not only good news. If the news is only good news, then what is the draw? What what is it that, that draws me in? Is there any message that I need to hear? When in fact the reality is far graver and and. I was in a Bible study a, a number of years ago, and we had a member of our group who um, he said, "When when everything's going, when I'm doing all the right stuff, when I'm when I'm doing everything right, uh, everything seems to be going well. Uh, but when I have a, a little sin that creeps in, then everything starts going back bad." And I thought, "Man, like I sinned like 15 times on the way to the Bible study." And it's the first thing in the morning. Uh, uh, and I think that's, that's problematic. I think that's, that's something that we see a lot. And I think even Ms. Pat kind of touched, touched on it. <laughs> we, we, we have this really small view of sin, or as we're going to see in the passage, we have no view of sin. If we have that small view of sin, then therefore we have a, a small view of God uh, and who He is. And we need to have a, a fuller picture of reality. We need to more fully appreciate Christ. Uh, And that's what John is about to do for us in this letter. And I wanted to do this study in, you'll probably hear me interchange 1 John and 1 John, so just know I'm talking about the same thing. But in 1 John, John he asked these difficult questions. This is why I wanted to do this. These challenging questions that come our way, these sort of tests for us, but they're also reminders of, of where our hope lies. And then he gives us these great assurances that, that keep us fighting the good fight against sin and doubt and fear and defeat. This... Um, this letter, this epistle, was, was written to all Christians. So, so John's gospel, remember uh, at the end of the gospel, he says, this is written so that you may believe. 
So that's sort of written to the non-believers, although, of course, it also edifies the believers and reminds us of the, uh, the good news. But this epistle is written to Christians, and it's, it's not written to a specific church like Galatians or um, Corinthians. And its main focus is to remind us of the basics. The word no appears repeatedly uh, in his letter. And John is reminding us of the things that we know, but that we need to be reminded of again and again. Some people describe uh, the first epistle of John as a spiral, like a spiral staircase. And we're kind of looking at the same thing all the way around, but from different angles. So that's what we're going to be doing. It's about the fact that Jesus has come and how we should respond to the fact that He has come. That we respond in faith, obedience, that we respond in love. There's an old story of when John was an old, very old man at this point. He was too old to preach, and so they would bring him out in the church service instead of a sermon He would just stand and say, My dear children, love one another. That's enough. And then he would sit down again. And um, I think it's funny because this letter is very deep. And at the same time, it's it's put forward in, in actually quite simple language, pretty straightforward statements. It's not confusing like sometimes Paul's letters can seem confusing. Even Peter uh, admits that. Uh, in fact, I have a friend who did his Ph.D. on uh, this epistle of 1 John, and he chose it because the Greek was much easier to do. I'm sure Bruce can appreciate that. Um, it's not The statements are simple. They're not difficult. Uh, but while the language is easy, the concepts and the relationship between the concepts um, are very difficult and they're very challenging. For example, in chapter 3, verse 6, John says, No one who abides in him, in Christ, keeps on sinning. But we do. So, what does he mean? You'll have to wait for chapter 3 to find out. How's that for a teaser? This epistle, this first letter of 1 John, it's filled with seemingly worrying statements like that that can kind of put us on the edge of our seat. And it also ends in one of the, the boldest statements in the, in the New Testament, Testament about our eternal security in Christ. In chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, it says, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. It's beautiful. It's beautiful language. How about we pray and we ask for God's help as we work together uh, through His Word. Father, uh, we need Your help. Um, Sometimes We read your word and we are perplexed, we're confused, and we have questions, and we need your spirit to reveal to us the truth. Um, We need your guidance because, Lord, um, 
many of, not, of us, if not all of us in this room, have put our trust in Christ. And we believe that your word is true. And we want to understand it better, but we need your help. So, Father, would you help us as we go through this, this letter of John, as we try to understand these, uh, these uh, complex issues that you've put forth, that you would simplify them in our hearts and our minds, that you would give us that great assurance in Christ. For we pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, This is a book about, or a letter about, the word of life, John says. I'm writing, I'm writing this from personal experience. I, I have heard it. I have seen it. I have touched it with my own hands. So, so John is writing as an eyewitness. And when he writes, his subject is this word of life. The word of life which he saw and heard and felt. The word of life that was, uh, according to verse 2, manifest. It was visible. It was present. And we have seen it. We testify to it and proclaim to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. Three times he affirms that this is a first-hand eyewitness truth concerning that word of life. The word of life that was once with the Father. The word of life which is incarnate. The, the word of life which brought eternal life. This then is the message of God's revelation in Christ. And it makes me think how many churches we could go to this morning and we wouldn't hear a message about a person, that, that the reality of what Christ has done, but it would be some sort of vague, ethereal sense of spirituality. There's nothing concrete or, or true in, in those words. And so it doesn't really give a lot of hope. And this is the root of Christianity, that God sent His Son in human flesh, taking on flesh to pay the penalty of sin for you and I. It's the root of the message. But what is at stake here? We proclaim what we have seen and heard so that you might have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. What is at stake here? It's a knowledge about God. It's knowing God. We apostles write so that men and women may know God. And we are in fellowship with Him. We have come to share His values, His, his way of looking at things, his, his goals. We have come to grasp His truth. And if you are in fellowship with us, you too are in this fellowship with God and His people. Well, what is fellowship? It's this invitation to that shared commitment. It's, it's a shared commitment or a value. It's a shared goal that is linked with God who has revealed Himself in the God-man Jesus. But that's not all because John says, it's not only for fellowship that I write, but it's also to make His joy complete. God has made Himself known. 
We have witnessed this revealing of God through His Son. And if you have fellowship with us, then you have fellowship with Him. And you have joy, as we do, in knowing and having fellowship with God. This is the core of John's message. At the root, at the root of Christianity is God's uh, self-disclosure with witnesses who proclaim it to others so that they might have fellowship with Him. And that in our joy, in, uh, that our joy is then in that knowledge of God. He's come, He's revealed Himself, He's made Himself knowable, we now know Him, and we, our joy is made complete in that. By, from the One who has made us, from the One who has given us life and breath, it's It's the purpose of life so that we can be full. So at the outset, John is declaring the root of the Christian faith. That's the first four verses that he's laying out. He wants people to be clear on what he's about to talk about. And in the next section, he shows what is at issue in Christianity. Because at the core of the issue is how do we now be reconciled to this God that we want to know. This God of the universe. Verse 5 tells us, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. God is light. There is no darkness in Him and yet we live in a broken world. We see the effects of death and sin and so we ask, How are these two things compatible? How do they go together? We insist that God is only good. And on the other hand, we see that there is evil here in this world. So how do we understand this world? And to be honest, Christians have struggled to answer this question. Even even Bible writers have struggled to answer this. I mean, if you want to see pain and suffering struggled with, go read Job. Go read Habakkuk. We're not the first generation to ask these questions. The Bible says that even though God is sovereign and transcendent, He is completely good. It's who He is. And it does give us some answers about uh, in terms of where evil comes from, uh, but it sees first and foremost sees that issue first and foremost in terms of rebellion. And John's not interested in answering this philosophical question of the origin of evil. He's interested in answering the question about how do I get into fellowship with this God? How do we know Him? Not how do we explain evil, but how do we stop doing it? And then in the next few verses, John sets up three false responses to that claim that God is light and there is no darkness in Him. And then the Christian response to those false reactions. First, some people claim uh, that you can know God and still walk in darkness. In other words, you can make all the claims of of being spiritual, but it has no bearing on your ethical life. 
John says, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. If God is light and there is no darkness in him, then to know this God is to walk in the light, to walk in the ways that are, that are pleasing to him. So if we claim to know this God, to have fellowship with him, while we instead uh, cherish a sin and everything that is dark, then we are living a lie. I worked with um, a, a young African guy in politics a number of years ago, and he was married and, and he had a child, and his wife and child were living back in, I think it was Liberia. And, and he was trying to make some inroads in the U.S. as far as jobs concerned. And he had a Christian background. He was going to a church. Um, he seemed to profess some sort of faith. And so we were discussing these things, and I understood that he was being unfaithful to his wife. And I asked him about this. And his response was that men by nature are hunters. Um, this was just who they were. Uh, but if his wife were to commit the same sin against him, that would be unforgivable. Uh, and so I asked him, well, this sounds like a double standard. Um, but for him, where he comes from, that was not the case. It's just the nature of men and women. Well, so what if God acted in this way? What if God had this double standard and he seemed not to care. And sadly, there are a number of people who think this way. And so they walk intentionally in darkness while at the same time claiming light. What does the Bible say about this? Well, Psalm 5, The boastful shall not stand before you. You hate all those who do iniquity. Psalm 66, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Psalm uh, Isaiah 59, uh, your iniquities have made separation between you and your God. Your, your sins have hidden his face from you so, so that he does not hear you. 2 Corinthians 6, what fellowship is light with darkness? H how then should a Christian respond to the darkness that we find in our own lives and in the world around us? If we say we have fellowship with Him, while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. What is the alternative? Well, the alternative is walking according to God's pattern. It's walking according to God's revelation, walking according to God's light so that we might have genuine fellowship with him. But, someone says, I still sin. Yes, John says, I know. But if we walk in the light and still sin, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. It's not through trying to make your... Uh, your good works outweigh your bad works. It's, it's not a karma model. It, it's not uh, through you promising God that you will try better next time. 
It is through the blood of Jesus that purifies us. It is through his coming to earth and suffering. The blood represents that life being taken from him and the just dying for the unjust that we might be forgiven. That's how we deal with sin. How did you become a Christian? How did you become a Christian? Did you not come to terms with the sin in your heart and ask God to have forgiveness on you, to forgive you, to have mercy on you, a sinner? I accept Christ by faith that He died for me. Well, then how will you deal with your sin now? Hint, it's the same. It's the same. You go to the same Savior again and again and again and say, Lord, have mercy on me. I am a sinner. And it's not that God is, is, is beginning a, a new work in you all over again. It's not that you are being saved again. The only remedy we have for sins is the one that God gave us in the first place. It's His own Son. So claiming that your sin doesn't matter is not a solution at all. We are just lying. We learn to live by God's light and where we do sin, and we will. We remember it is by the blood of God's Son who purifies us from sin, from every sin. The second false claim is found in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The first claim was that it doesn't matter if we sin. This claim is that there is no sin in us. We have transcended the category. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Um, a minister friend of mine told me that he worked with a senior pastor one time and this senior minister believed that he had achieved a point of sinless perfection. Uh, and there are groups, churches, who believe in sinless perfectionism that you can kind of be sanctified to the point where sin's no longer an issue for you. That idea... Uh, I seem to think would be easy to disprove. In fact, there was um, a conference one time where a minister had stood up and made this declaration that that's kind of where he was. And so one of the other participants of this meeting came and poured his milk all over this man. You can imagine what happened. Sinless perfection out the window. Although I would think that there's probably a better way to do this. I mean, just go talk to the guy's wife or children or parents or barber or anybody that comes in contact with this person, right? So what do we do about it? Do we pretend that we have no sin? Is that how we are to go through life? Is that how Christians live? Just pretending that it's not there? So what do we do about it? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us, purify us, 
from all unrighteousness. We don't hide them. Rather, we admit them. We confess them. We, we, we take them out of the darkness and we bring them into the light and we look at them and we, we bring out the things that we wouldn't dare bring out into public, the shameful things, the, the lies, the deceitfulness. We dare to live an examined life. We dare to look at all the things that, that show us how sinful our hearts can be and we confess them. Why? Because we know that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. If God did send His Son as a sacrifice for me, if His Son paid my debt, if Jesus died for me, then surely as God's child, I can say, Lord, if you've provided that sacrifice for my sins, will you not forgive me now? This sin because you died for me. And God is faithful to the promises he made in his son. He is just. He will not punish me for what Jesus has taken on my behalf in the eternal sense. We're talking about whether we can deal with our own sin. And John says we can, not by denying that they are there, but by confessing our sins and remembering that God is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse from that unrighteousness. The final false claim is, if we say we have not sinned, that sounds like the exact same thing, but I think it slightly varies. The context suggests that someone is claiming Not that they have eradicated any sin within them, but rather that they have never sinned. I think it's probably what Miss Pat was saying. Why would I need God? I haven't done anything wrong. There's nothing wrong that I have done. I have nothing to be judged by. That they're not even on the plane of sin, so to speak. And we know God's Word says we are, and that we do. It's like a friend of mine who was witnessing to a man one day, and uh, he said, uh, you know, we're all sinners. And the guy said, yeah, no, not me. I mean, I've made bad decisions, but I'm not a sinner. As if sinner is this word for, like, mass murderer or or low-life thief or an abuser or something, all of which, you know, by Jesus' definition on the... uh, on the mount, it's, that's probably, you're defined by those things, actually. Uh, and after answering a few of the man's questions, this man realized that he was an adulterer, a liar, and a cheat. If this is the case, then we make God out to be a liar. If we say there's no sin in us, we, we've never sinned. We make God out to be a liar. Because we know that the Bible says that we, like sheep, have gone astray. There's no one righteous, no, not one. Again and again and again, the Bible insists that we are a generation of sinners. And we come along and say, you know, that's for other people. That's for those people. I don't sin myself. And God says, you are calling me a liar. Well, let's say you get 
this person to admit that, that they are sinners. And they say, okay, fine, but there's not a lot that I can really do about it. But John says, chapter 2, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He's not insisting that people sin again and again and again so that they can make an excuse for sin. In fact, he will say stronger things later on about Christians and sinning, about Christians not sinning. I write this so that you may not sin. Not to make an excuse when you do, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the one who makes a defense for us. He is the propitiation for our sins And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation. Propitiation, the act of making God favorably inclined. He not only takes on our sin, but He does something with respect to the Father. The the, the Father pours out his, His wrath on the Son, so that those in Christ will be saved. Why wrath? Because God is just. The penalty of sin is death. And because of God's character, He cannot just wink at it and then let you in through the back door. There is a sense of justice. It makes me think of the the old cliche, God loves the sinner and hates the sin. And yet, if you go and read the first 50 psalms, 14 times in those songs, psalms, you will find a phrase like this, God hates the sinner. The one who sins, his soul abhors. Things that these Christian institutions and Christian schools would never teach, nor would they even say them. So if God is wrathful, rightfully so, then propitiation should not be overlooked or minimized as it was when the, a group came along and tried to, do, uh, to undermine Keith and Kristen Getty's song in Christ Alone. If you remember this, the, the phrase, the, the, on the cross the wrath of God was satisfied. These people came along and wanted to change it to On the cross, the love of God was magnified. But it doesn't get all the way to the issue. The Bible simultaneously insists that because He is holy, He is angry with us for our sin. If He is holy, then He must hate our sin. He must be repulsed at us as sinners. But at the same time, He's not bad-tempered. He's not arbitrary. It is His character to love. That is the kind of God He is. Sometimes people talk about it as if His love outweighs His wrath or His justice. The way we need to look at it is that it's a maximum of everything. His love, His wrath, His justice, everything is is at at the height. He is perfect. He's not countered on a weight. It is His character to love. 
That is the kind of God he is. So despite his principled righteous anger with us, his anger, which is a function of his holiness, he loves us so much that he sends his son and he pours out his wrath on himself. You know, in paganism, you offer a sacrifice to a God to appease that God. But in Christianity, God offers the sacrifice to appease his own sense of justice. There's no other religion like it. There's no other faith in the world like it. And so we've seen this morning the root, the the physical coming of the Word, the physical coming of the Messiah, the physical coming of God, the Christ, Jesus, the issue, our sin, what we do with it, what we make of it, how we deal with it. And the root deals with the issue so that we can have fellowship with the Father and the Son and that our joy can be made complete. Amen? Let's pray. Father, sometimes I read these things and they seem so simple. And sometimes I read these things and I am perplexed and confused. And I imagine I'm confused because of the wickedness in my heart and my sin seeks to shroud the truth. And yet your spirit ministers and helps me see with clarity the truth of who I am, the the sin in my heart, the sin in my life, and who you are, the, the creator, the author, the sustainer of all life the only one who is worthy of worship. And you didn't leave us here to flounder around, but you have come in the form of your Son. The Son has come down. The Son who has existed forever with you took on flesh And offered himself so that we, your creation, can have life in and through him. And so, Father, if there's anyone in this room who has a small view of Christ, we pray that that would begin to transform today. That we would have a greater appreciation of who he is and what he has done. If anyone here in this room has too small a view of sin, the sin in our hearts, the sin in our lives, that they would have a a greater understanding of that sin so that we can understand Christ all the more. The weight of that word propitiation, that the wrath that I rightfully deserved was not poured out on me, but because I've put my faith and trust in Christ, it was poured out on Him that we can have life that we can have fellowship with that Creator God who deserves our praise, our adoration, our worship. So that we can have fellowship with Christ. So that we can have fellowship with one another because we hold these things in common. And so that our joy can be made complete. We pray these things in Christ.